Today's podcast is sponsored by our friends at the Expert Institute. If you handle cases involving lots of experts, I encourage you to talk to the Expert Institute. Let me give you an example of how that works for us at our firm. Let's say we need an expert for a case, say an expert in neurointensive care. In the old days, I would search my files for experts I'd used in the past, or maybe reach out to my colleagues at my firm or on a listserv for suggestions. Then our office would have to track these folks down, and perhaps the first person or two we contacted wouldn't work out and we'd go back to the drawing board. It takes time and resources. It can be inefficient and doesn't always land you with the best expert for your case. What do I do now? I simply send one email to my contact at the Expert Institute. We then have a brief call where I explain what I'm looking for, and they do all the work after that. And they don't just recycle the same old tired experts. Every search is unique and independently tailored for my case. It's tailored by the specialty of the expert, by geographic location, if I have a preference, and even by the amount of litigation experience that the person has. If I want somebody who's never testified in a case before, they will find me that person. And if I ask them to do so, they will locate several potential experts for a case and then set up all the phone calls for me so that I can interview those candidates and decide who will be the best fit for my case. It's faster, it's more efficient, and it produces better results. For our listeners only, Expert Institute is offering 25% off your first expert case consult. Go to expertinstitute.com forward slash elevate, E-L-A-W-V-A-T-E, to redeem this exclusive discount. This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Ravi Pudi. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Ben Gideon. And I'm Rahul Ravi Pudi. So Rahul, how, how's life in Los Angeles these days? What's going on in your world? Well, we're in the yellow tear zone now. And what that means is that um, at Dodger Stadium, they used to allow only 25% of capacity. I think right now it's up to two thirds. And so today will be the first day since 2019 I'll be back in the stadium taking um, my wife and my three boys. Who do they play? They're playing the Mariners. So my son is taking a trip with some of his uh, teenage buddies, and they're going to be in Los Angeles in a few weeks. And their one dream is to go to the Dodgers-Cubs game. So uh, can you tell us here live on the air whether you can set them up with tickets? I'm um, 100% sure I can set them up, and I'm going to be there too. My 12-year-old is a huge Cubs fan. I think he got into baseball the year they won the World Series, and that was it for him. So so we'll be there too. So great. Well, we'll definitely take you up on that and see how that goes. Uh, we're here today with uh, a great guest. Very excited to invite Patrick Malone to the show. Pat, before we get into your bio, are you a baseball fan? Eh, not really. No? I had, you know, too many great disappointments over the years, so I had to leave the tragedy behind. I was wondering, you grew up in Kansas. I mean, what, who, what, who would you root for if you were a Kansas guy? Uh, it would be... Um, 
Well, when I was growing up, it was the Kansas City A's, later became the Oakland A's, and then uh, and then we got a new team, the Royals. Yeah, that was kind of some of my formative years with George Brett and the Royals. They were a pretty good team for a while. Yeah. So welcome to the show. Pat Malone is a trial lawyer who hails from Washington, D.C. Uh, Pat is a graduate of Yale Law School and um, went on to represent plaintiffs in mostly medical malpractice cases, although he's done a variety of other types of cases, has a lot of great verdicts in those cases, is a member of the inner circle and has written a number of books, one of which we will get into talking about today. Um, so Pat, the, uh, the road from Yale Law School to plaintiff's trial lawyer is a road that isn't traveled very often. Um, tell, tell us a little bit about that road for you. Yeah, uh, you know, that's still true today. I, uh, I think there's probably half a dozen or so people that I know who went to Yale and, and, uh, and decided to do plaintiff's work. Uh, there are quite a few in the kind of nonprofit representing human beings sphere, but, uh, you know, there's a large uh, Wall Street magnet that uh, sucks people in um, and uh, doesn't let them go. I, I got I got there because I, I went to law school thinking about being a, a plaintiff's lawyer. I was a newspaper reporter for the Miami Herald in Miami, Florida. This was back in the days when the newspapers were so thick that they'd cause human injury if they landed on on you in the wrong way when the paper boy threw them, uh, you know, and big fat budgets. And it was just uh, the heyday. I, I didn't realize at the time, but it was the heyday of daily journalism in the United States. This is back in the late 70s. And I was the medical reporter for the Herald. And my job was, as I saw it, was to kind of expand from the sort of um, medical uh, breakthrough cheerleading community of which was what most medical writing was in those days and just try to explore the whole thing of medicine, including the underside. So I started going to malpractice trials in the Dade County Courthouse, and I came across one that uh, was a legendary um, trial lawyer for the plaintiffs uh, named J.B. Spence, and he represented a doctor plaintiff, a widower of a lady who died in a uh, gynecological surgery because they put the breathing tube down into her stomach instead of her throat, and you can't breathe too well through your stomach. And it was a wild case. This fellow, the plaintiff, was from Cuba uh, originally. And, and when his wife was in a coma in the slow dying process afterwards, he had various kinds of um, Santeria voodoo sort of incantations to try to bring her back to life. The, the trial was just wild. But I, I, I was watching the trial and I saw these lawyers on both sides, you know, kind of prancing around the courtroom doing what lawyers do. And and uh, and this light bulb uh, goes off over my head. I said, geez, you know, I, I could do that. Uh, it looks like fun. Uh, in high school, I had been on our uh, extracurricular uh, debate team. 
and was the head of the debate team at one point and you know did pretty well at it but i but i uh i left that behind when i went to college because uh if you um if you stick with debate in college you really have to kind of go pro it's like a a varsity sport in uh in college and i didn't want to do that so i i wound up going into journalism and uh and then journalism brought me back to uh public speaking and law so uh, that's uh, that's how I got there. Well, it seems like at least two thirds of this population right now graduated from Yale Law School and went into the plaintiffs' bar. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You and Ben. Yeah. I bet you guys know the others four, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> they're not invited. They're not invited back at, to the reunions. <laughs> Actually, we are, but uh, you know, we're kind of an exotic uh, exotic species. So I'm curious. So you, I, I also, I, I guess I must have been following your footsteps without knowing it because I also mostly focus on medical malpractice work. For those who don't do that for a living, though, that's often considered one of the harder areas to do as a plaintiff's lawyer. The statistics are, are pretty ominous for the chances of success at trial for plaintiffs suing doctors in medical cases. Why did you gravitate toward that? And why do you think medical malpractice cases have that reputation as being so hard for plaintiffs to win? Well, I, I got there because uh, I was interested in, in medicine. I never wanted to be a doctor, but I always just liked writing about medicine. I liked the people involved and I liked the science aspects of it. And it was always a real challenge to try to translate arcane medical stuff into, you know, human, ordinary uh, English. Uh, but, um, and the reason it's, it's hard, actually back in, when I started watching these malpractice trials, the, the, the plaintiff lawyers were just hitting it out of the park uh, quite often. Um, in fact, that's what prompted this early wave of so-called tort reform in the mid and late 70s. California, you know, passed their uh, damages cap uh, back, I think, 1975 even, uh, and it's still the same uh, same lid today. But it's hard because the people you're suing are not evil. They're good people, uh, for the most part. There are, there are some bad ones out there. But they're good people who made a mistake, um, sometimes multiple mistakes, uh, sometimes super careless, sometimes, you know, I've actually felt sorry for people I've sued thinking, you know, this poor guy was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But um, the the thing I always liked about it was that, well, there's a lot of things I like about it, but taking a, 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 a human being, a, a client who's usually knows very little about medicine and something really horrible and tragic has happened in their life and it happened at a hospital and they can't get explanations from the doctors or nurses involved uh, and it's just bewildering and shocking to them and we help bring the light of day to that and I've I just uh, have always uh, had a real kind of human connection to the clients in that respect. In fact, just day before yesterday, uh, here in our office, we we settled a case on the eve of trial, and the the uh, our client came to the office bearing a 
big chocolate cake that she and her sister had made, and they had uh, written thank you on the top in a different colored icing. It was chocolate cake with lavender-colored lettering, you know, thanking us for the for the work we did. And it was, God, it was just really great. I don't see how you get that uh, representing corporate America, uh, just pushing uh, sums of money uh, across the table back and forth, even though they are large sums of money. So this case, um, my client's husband had gone in to have a mass removed from his colon that the surgeon was convinced could be cancer despite having a negative biopsy that said it was normal tissue. And what happened was uh, he just really did poorly afterwards after the surgery and kept declining and declining and declining. And finally, seven days later, they said, you know, he, he may have a leak in there. And they opened him up and he had so much... Uh, buildup of horrible infected fluid in his belly that it gushed out, just liters of it. And um, yes, it turned out that he had developed a, a slow leak and they just never recognized it. And so pursuing the case was quite a challenge. Uh, the The surgeon did not want to admit it, that he'd d- absolutely done anything wrong, despite having uh, some fairly incriminating text messages back and forth with his um, partner uh, after they discovered the hole in the in the bowel, saying, "You know what we should have done in the uh, maybe in the first place is just put a camera in and look around." And they said, "Yeah, that that probably would have been a good idea." I mean, it was that that obvious, but um, but he changed his mind by the time of the deposition, and so uh, the the case was a real. Um, really uh, difficult one emotionally, but, you know, it worked out fine in the end. Have you noticed um, in taking depositions or examining doctors who uh, committed some form of malpractice that while you said they're most of them are good people, when they show up for deposition, they sort of show their ugliest sides of themselves? Yeah, um, they're often kind of... Uh, trained to be um, pretty aggressive kind of junior defense lawyers for themselves. And ultimately, doesn't really help them that much. Because, of course, we always video these depositions and we play uh, good chunks of them in our case at trial. That's a typical way we'll do it. And then when they show up in the defense case and they're all warm and fuzzy it's just a different person, uh, and so the jury's wondering, well, who's who's the real who's the real human being here? You wrote a book together with Rick Friedman, who appeared on our our podcast earlier, but we didn't spend much time talking about this earlier book called Rules of the Road. And then you wrote a second book where you applied the lessons on teachings of Rules of the Road to medical malpractice, and then your most recent book uh, on cross examination, which we'll get to in a, in a bit. Um, at least in part, uses some of those principles that you develop through rules of the road in the way in which you teach cross-examination. So I'd like to go back to rules of the road. What are rules of the road? Why are they important? And how did they change the way you thought about trying cases? Well, um, and it was Rick's idea. Rick Friedman 
uh, started out this concept. He he did it in uh, an insurance bad faith uh, case of his. He had a series of them that he did very successfully, and he described in the book how you know uh, he one day before a closing argument or one evening before closing argument, he just had this epiphany where he thought, you know, let's let's write down what the agreed items are in this case and then figure out from there where the disagreements are. And so Rules of the Road focuses primarily on what can we agree with the defense about first and foremost. Lots of lawyers skip over that and they go straight to the controversy without paying much attention to the fact that the defense has grudgingly or or maybe not so grudgingly conceded a lot of good stuff for them. So if you focus on what you agree with, or what you can force them that they uh, have to agree with, or they really look silly and stupid, that is a really good starting point for proving the liability in, in your case. One super simple example, anybody who's done an informed consent issue w- would, uh, would know this, is you can force the defendant and the defense experts to admit that doctors are, have an obligation a legal and medical and ethical obligation to get their patients informed consent, quote unquote, before doing any kind of treatment to the patient. But more than that, that that's something everybody will agree with, but it uses buzzwords that the jury, many people in jury are not familiar with. Informed consent, what does that mean? And if you say something that is not absolutely clear to the jury, you risk planting seeds of ambiguity and confusion that you don't want. Because lots of people think, oh, uh, consent, well, that's that that waiver form that you sign right before surgery where you agree that the doctor can do anything he wants and um, people, uh, totally wrong, but people often think that, that that's a legal waiver and you can't sue for anything that the doctor warned you could happen. Uh, what So in Rules of the Road, the uh, important thing is not just what we agree on, but what we agree on in words that the jury can really understand. So I would translate that statement about doctors obliged to get informed consent to saying a doctor is required to um, tell the patient the important facts so the patient can make an intelligent decision. What I noticed when I started trying cases was that the jury instructions and the rules regarding negligence claims very very much disfavored the plaintiff because they were very confusing for the jury and they didn't know what any of it meant, particularly in a medical case. What does it mean to provide ordinary reasonable care under the same or similar circumstances for a doctor? No one knows what that means. And then they basically show up and say, well, the doctor was sober and he tried hard, so that's all they need to do. Uh, and that's when I when I first read Rules of the Road and your your uh, book on Rules of the Road for Malpractice, it was kind of an epiphany for me because that filled in that gap of how do you explain to the jury what the neg- what it means to be negligent in a case? What what are you actually saying? Um, so I don't know if that's how it was intended to be utilized, but I, I found it really valuable in my own practice applying it that way. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, I mean, the idea is to just 
take these very vague uh, concepts that are in the jury instructions and put some flesh on them in in ways that the jury can understand and that the defense has to grudgingly concede. Yes, uh, we are required if there are abnormal findings after a surgery, we have to follow up. Uh, we can't just let it go. And then and then the issue becomes, well, did you follow up? And was your follow-up uh, right under those circumstances? That would, you know, be that surgery complication case that I, that I mentioned. But, it, yeah, really simple, uh, straightforward uh, stuff, you know. If there's a test available that will help a doctor figure out if someone has a life-threatening uh, condition, the doctor has to do the test. It's that simple. Your book is the first book I read as a, a practicing lawyer as well. And I can't tell you how much it's deepened my learning curve in framing issues for uh, depositions and for trial. And and the point that I got out of it, which I think is critical, is once you establish that rule, then the next question to any witness who you've now gotten into that uh, begrudging concession mode is why? Does that role exist? And invariably, it's safety. Yeah, it exists because we're trying to protect people from preventable harm. You know, foreseeability is the, is the core of negligence. So if it's foreseeable that somebody's going to get hurt, if you don't follow a certain protocol, a certain set of guidelines, then, hey, uh, if you don't do it, you're in trouble. I wanted to ask you about, uh, just to divert a little bit, um, We've now gone through about a year of a pandemic. How do you think that's going to affect juries and how they look at doctors and hospitals and evaluate medical cases? You know, I, uh, I'm i not much more than a speculator about this kind of stuff. I, I have no idea. I've been wrong about juries many times, thinking, gosh, I'm going to win this case. And turns out I was wrong. But what you hear, from people who do lots of surveys of jurors and potential jurors is that it really hasn't made a whole lot of difference. People are smart enough to make a distinction between the true heroes who, you know, are working their fingers off in emergency rooms and ICUs and stuff like that uh, and distinguish those who we really admire and respect totally from, you know, the run-of-the-mill uh, doctors and nurses and other care providers who are, are just going about their regular, regular lives. They don't get a special gold star for uh, showing up at work. At least that's, that's our current thinking. And, you know, we'll find out. It's, it's, it's a slow-moving thing. We're going to find out over the next year or two uh, if it really did have some kind of uh, impact. Just don't know yet. So one of the things, you've written a book on patient safety with some advice to people about how to find quality medical providers and to make sure that uh, they can get safe medical care. I know you've also done some writing. You have a, a disabled son, and I'm sure that uh, navigating that brought you into contact with a lot of medicine and medical issues on a very personal level. Do, do you think that that has influenced the way you approach medical cases? 
You know, I, I, I'm not really sure. That, that's really an interesting question. So our third child, uh, our son Brendan, when he was two and a half, three years old, he just started regressing. He seemed totally normal and very bright little boy. I, he could, he loved books and he could turn the pages. If he if he had had a book a, a number of times, he was almost kind of like he was reading it, except he was just reciting it from, from uh, memory. And he knew his alphabet and, uh, you know, seemed like a very precocious boy. But then he just started regressing and he started losing his speech. And uh, he hasn't, he's now 30 years old and he hasn't said a word since he was five years old. So that was a, uh, he has autism and we finally learned. And that was a, a pretty deep um, hole in our hearts that, you know, is never going to heal. I think that what has helped me in talking to clients is that I can honestly tell them, you know, this current tragedy that you're going through in your life, uh, I, I can say at least a little bit in total truth and candor that I've been there and I know a little bit about uh, what it's like. And so I think empathy is so important with our clients. And that's why I, I really sort of gravitate towards just the unique individual cases. And I don't do, I uh, haven't done much of, I did a little bit early on of the so-called mass torch stuff where everybody's just kind of a, on an assembly line of, of legal cases, all with the same kind of claim. Um, but yeah, I think uh, it, it, it affected me on a personal level. We've had both with uh, Brendan, both on the medical end and also just on the caregiver end, met so many wonderful people uh, who have uh, taken, you know, really good care of him over the years. Uh, I, I'm actually prosecuting a case right now of um, another young man, and this is every parent's nightmare for a disabled uh, child. Uh, this young man uh, had an eating uh, disorder, which is very common in developmentally disabled children. He um, would stuff food in his mouth. And when he did that, he would be at risk of uh, choking. And they had a very elaborate care plan at the group home that his parents had placed him in when he became an adult. We had actually, Segway had gone through the same kind of thing. Like Brendan lived with us for his first 22 years, and he just got to be too much for my wife and I to physically handle. I, I mean, uh, he's bigger than my wife and uh, pretty strong. And, you know, uh, people who can't talk, uh, sometimes they get very frustrated and when they're trying to communicate what they want and they will lash out physically. Uh, so that's one of the blunt realities uh, of the thing. Well, in this other case where I represent uh, a family of, a, of an autistic uh, young man, he had this eating disorder and the, they had a very elaborate care plan, but it basically boiled down to one simple thing. You've got to be with him within arm's length when he's eating anything. Well, one day he has a new caregiver, and the caregiver decides to take him out to this deli, and somebody gives him a uh, muffin at the deli. The caregiver then takes him out and puts him in the far back seat of a three-seat three van, uh, three rows. And the caregiver's driving around, and, and the young man has this muffin. Well, when they finally get home after the caregiver 
has run a couple of errands, um, our our young man is dead, uh, choked to death on this muffin. And um, it, it turned out that, uh, you know, the guy had violated the care plan in numerous ways. And uh, the, the parents are, gosh, just, I mean, it's just something that you, you can't get over that. Um, so that happened just, just last summer, actually. And, and now we're about to have a mediation on the case because the defense uh, seems to realize, at least we hope, that there's not much of a defense here. My first trial with Brian Panish, he, uh, it was exactly that case. It was uh, a 38-year-old man with Angelman syndrome, and he needed hand-over-hand uh, feeding so that he didn't stuff food in his mouth and choke, and his food needed to be cut up, and the care providers did neither and gave him two sandwiches, and he stuffed them in his mouth and choked to death and died. And it just became a blame game between three different care providers, and the case had to get tried. But I, but I agree with you, Pat, that didn't seem like there should have been much in dispute. It's sad. Yeah, the um, this caregiver, uh, he had just started the night before, and they claimed that they had given him a training, but he flagrantly violated the, the core part of the care plan. So either the guy was just uh, complete disastrously incompetent, or they hadn't trained him about the eating protocol. So um, that's what we're dealing with now. So Pat, I want to move on in a moment to talk about your book. But before we do that, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about a recent case you filed that's quite high profile. I know you've been uh, interviewed on the national news about it. Um, I understand you've uh, sued our former president, maybe others on behalf of um, two Capitol Police officers who were injured in the insurrection. Can you just tell us a little bit about that case? Yeah. Um, so uh, the two U.S. Capitol Police officers whom I represent, their names are Blasingame and Hemby. And they, with our you know, writing up the complaint, we, we, we filed a very detailed uh, complaint against them in federal court here in D.C. Uh, we only have one defendant. His name is Donald J. Trump. And we have a variety of causes of action under both uh, state law, common law, federal law that says, uh, hey, you incited a riot. You knew what was going to happen. And in fact, when our guys were getting beat over the head by rioters, you were sitting there in the White House uh, taking great delight in what happened. So we filed the case at the end of March. And then um, that did bring a lot of attention. Uh, I tried to stay away from the news media too much because I, I don't want to try the case in the press. I did do one interview on uh, CNN. But the good part was our case came to the attention of a really uh, great group of uh, nonprofit lawyers called Protect Democracy who have filed various lawsuits trying to be in the public space of, of uh, protecting elections, democratic process. And they volunteered to help us with our case uh, free of charge. And so they've now signed on as co-counsel, and we added a claim under um, an 1871 statute called the Ku Klux Klan Act, the, which is uh, now it's called uh, Section 1985 of 42 U.S. Code. And it basically says that people who conspire together to prevent 
public officials from doing their job uh, can be sued in court for that. And the you can imagine in the old days, what got the statute started was literally lynch mobs showing up at the county courthouse and trying to break into the jail and grab black people out of typically out of the local jail and string them up to a tree and prevent public officials from doing their job of protecting these guys and seeing to the rule of law. So that statute actually applies quite directly to what happened on January 6th. A group of writers came in, hell-bent on preventing the United States Congress from doing its job of counting the electoral votes and certifying the presidential election. And the guy who was behind it was uh, the then current president. Something you couldn't have, you, you, no way you could have imagined this, at least before the, uh, the election of uh, 2016. No way you could imagine a sitting president doing this kind of thing. But it happened, and uh, we think there has to be accountability for people who are injured. And um, so we'll see what happens with our case. What's the procedural posture of it right now? Yeah, so... Um, we filed an amended complaint, and then we got Trump's lawyers to waive a service of process, you know, the literally putting the summons and complaint into the hands of the defendant. And I had my golf cart already in camouflage disguise, you know, to go down to Mar-a-Lago and sneak out there. And <laughs> Just kidding. But the... the um, so they, they waive service, and that gives them 60 days to file their first papers. And and we know from, there are two other cases pending against Trump, both filed by different congressmen along the, the same lines of inciting a riot and, uh, and conspiring to uh, prevent public officials from doing their jobs. Those cases are a few weeks further along than ours. And Trump's people get this, they actually filed uh, under federal rule civil procedure 11. Uh, you can bring a motion against someone for filing a, a frivolous lawsuit, and uh, but you first have to give them notice that you're going to file this motion and give them a chance to say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. Let me dismiss my case. Well, Trump's people actually filed this notice telling the plaintiff's lawyers in the congressman case, you'd better dismiss your case or we're going to uh, seek sanctions and attorney's fees against you. Because what you've done, congressman, is you're trying to weaponize our court system uh, for a political dispute. Now, hmm, that's funny. Weaponizing the court system for a political dispute. When have I heard that of that ever happening. Oh, wait. Yeah. After the 2020 election, wasn't there a wave of lawsuits like what, 50, 60 lawsuits uh, all trying to weaponize our court system to declare that the actual victory won by the one guy should have gone the other way? Uh, oh, I see. Yeah. Well, that that's different, of course. <laughs> so, so I don't know. It's uh, you can see you get a foretaste of where we're going with this thing. It's it, it's not going to be pretty. I, irony is dead. Yeah. <laughs> so so uh, well, I expect you will have a big target on your back, but um, we wish you the best with the case, and I'm sure we'll be following it, and we'll probably hear about it as it proceeds forward. Yeah. Thank you. So we'll take a short break now. We'll be back in about a minute uh, with more of Pat Malone. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Expert Institute. 
Not only will they find you testifying experts for your case, but they also offer an entire staff of in-house experts to help you strategize and prepare your case each step of the way. Go to expertinstitute.com forward slash elevate, and you'll get a 25% discount for our listeners for your first expert engagement. Our show is also brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is the top-rated legal case management software in the market. It's simple enough for the smallest practices and robust enough for the largest class action and multi-district litigation firms. Go to smartadvocate.com and again, ask for the discount available to the listeners of the Elevate podcast. Our show today is also brought to you by Hype Legal. Hype Legal is a boutique digital marketing firm for law firms. If you're feeling like you're in a digital marketing rut, perhaps you're tired of your old website, seeking something better, I would encourage you to talk to Tyler and Micah at Hype Legal. Tyler and Micah have been working in the legal space for 27 years combined. They both worked at High Impact, which is a firm that provides national trial graphics to lawyers, where they built out a highly successful marketing and digital platform for that company. Now they've started their own company to be a boutique marketing and design firm for high-end trial lawyers. I've worked with both Micah and Tyler for a long time, for Tyler for over a decade. They're incredibly professional, responsive, and have a real genius for aesthetics, design, and marketing. They designed our Elevate website and all of our graphics, which I think is really fantastic. Give them a call and check them out at hypelegal.com. Our episode today is being sponsored by Smart Advocate. I run a complex personal injury and medical malpractice law firm. It's highly document intensive with hundreds and thousands of clients and files, and we manage our entire practice using Smart Advocate. It's really great. And one thing that's great about it is it's completely customizable. It has robust reports and dashboards to track all of your case and firm operational details, and it makes my firm more efficient and more profitable. The system features tools such as intake scoring, work plans, automated procedures, uh, new case wizard, and lots of other features that help your team manage your cases as efficiently as possible. With a responsive support team, continual software releases, in fact, they just upgraded their cloud-based software, which is what we use and is great because you can use it anywhere at home or at the uh, office or anywhere on the road, Smart Advocate provides a legal case management software solution to help your firm. If you're interested in working with Smart Advocate, go to smartadvocate.com. And when you talk to them, tell them that folks at Elevate sent you and you'll get a discount only for our listeners. Pat, I wanted to talk to you about the new book uh, you you just published. I, I think it's hot off the presses. Um, it's a book entitled "The F- The Fearless Cross Examiner: Win the Witness, Win the Case," uh, published by Trial Guides. Is that uh, your publisher? Yep, that's the one. The book is not exactly hot off the presses, but it is. It's a good book. It's it's actually my uh, I think it's m- my best book because I kind of brought together a lot of thinking over the years about about trying uh, cases. And the title of the book, actually, um, my oldest son, uh, Ian Malone, came up with the title. He's not even a lawyer, but I told him the concept of the book. And we were noodling around with various kinds of ideas for, for a title. And um, he said, what about uh, the fearless cross-examiner? And I said, bingo, that's it, because it, it does kind of capsulize 
my whole approach w- with this thing, which is to try to free up uh, trial lawyers from the old restrictions on cross-examination where you were so worried about embarrassing yourself or looking foolish that you would do this very timid cross where you would remember that, oh, I can't ask one question too many, and I can't ask a question that I don't know the answer to, and I'm only able to ask leading questions, yes or no questions, and I've got to insist on just yes or no answers, and none of that is true. Uh, But it makes for very fearful kind of cross-examination. And so what I try to teach in this book is a different approach, which is not, you know, fearless cross-examiner is not just some big swaggering guy who who struts around like a peacock in the in the courtroom and and irritates everyone with his or her massive ego no it's it's a it's an analytic approach where you study the witness you study the case and you figure out your your best shots and you just go for it and you don't let up until you've really uh done some damage uh, to the other side's overall case or to this particular witness. So I, I love the book. One thing I, I like about it is that it's um, it, it's got a lot of kind of high level thinking, but then it also boils that down to very practical uh, steps that people can follow if they're new to this or uh, like uh, Raul and I are doing this for years. Um, and your son came up with a great title, you should tell Ian, we, we love it. I love the cover art too. So I guess my first question about it is we, you hear different theories about sort of what's the most important part of every trial. We were talking with uh, Bob Kelly a couple of weeks ago and a lot about voir dire. And there's the theory that, you know, the case is won or lost by the time you seat your jury. There's other thinking that, um, you know, the case is won or lost by the time you finish your opening where where do you think cross examination ranks in the parts of a trial in terms of its overall importance to the result? I think well, first of all, voir dire. I mean, we're all kind of victims of our own uh, upbringing. The jurisdictions where I practice, which is District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia, primarily, um, Virginia has decent. Uh, lawyer-run voir dire, but Maryland and D.C., where I do most of my practice, is all federal court-style, judge-run voir dire, and you can find out very little about uh, your jurors um, uh, that way. So I'm just <laughs> not much of a, voir- of a voir dire promulgator because I, I just don't get the chance to do it that often. Opening statement, I agree, is, is critically important to set the framework of, of your case. But cross-examination is where, especially on close cases, you can clarify the case, you can get people who are on the fence on your jury to be off the fence and to, and to be on, on your side. And I, I just think, to me, a, a, to me, a trial lawyer who is not a good cross-examiner has, you know, frankly, a pretty massive hole in there quiver of, of weaponry uh, for trial. You you have to be pretty good at cross-examination. And the good news of the book is you can train yourself and you can be a pretty good cross-examiner. You don't have to be Clarence Darrow or, or um, Spence or uh, one of the famous uh, guys, you, but you, you've got to really study it 
and you got to practice. You know, it's funny how lawyers love winging it. You know, people like to wing their their opening. They think, oh, it's got to be spontaneous. You know, and um, and they'll say the same about Cross. But I'm here to say, actually, I've got a, a cool quote in the book exactly on this point. Dwight D. Eisenhower. You know, he he was the man in charge of D-Day. June 6, 1944. Massive effort. And he said, in battle, I have found that plans are useless, but planning is essential. And the way I take that as a trial lawyer is that having a script for the cross, the the, the plan, is is not going to help you. But going through the process of studying the witness, doing some practice where you have somebody from your office or a friend of yours um, play the witness and 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 kind of rehearse some some sample cross, just that process of getting the thing into your head and even writing out questions. Um, not that you will stick to those questions necessarily, but that you'll get them into your bloodstream. And it will make for a far more effective cross-examination than if you just tried to uh, to wing it. So do you have um, an example of some of these circumstances in which you would do open-ended questions or, or do things that don't fall under those rigid rules of need to be leading questions, need to make sure you know what the answers are? Yeah, uh, I mean, there's some simple ones. So let's take a car wreck case where uh, somebody turns left in front of uh, of somebody else uh, who has the right of way. There's no left turn signal, and they smash into each other. So you're taking uh, the cross-examining the driver of the car that turned left, and you say to the person, "You could say, isn't it true that da 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 da?" But why not say something like? So, um, did you take driver's ed in high school? Uh, what did they teach you in driver's ed about when it was safe to make a left turn when there was oncoming traffic? Now, that's an open-ended question, but it's also a fairly narrow question. And then you just kind of uh, ponder uh, what are the possible answers, and you're and you try to be ready for uh, for each one of them. One possible answer is, well, I don't remember what we did back in driver's ed. It was a long time ago. That's okay. That's good. I like that as an answer. Uh, but if they say, well, in driver's ed, they teach you that you're not supposed to turn left unless it's you, you can be very sure that you're going to clear before the oncoming driver gets there. So then you have a great admission for your case. And you have it in the witness's words, coming out of the witness's mouth, not simply the witness sort of meekly saying, oh, yes, uh, sir, yes, sir, in answer to your very florid uh, speech. Another example that, in fact, I put this in the book would be, um, let's say you're, you're cross-examining someone who is a lawsuit expert for uh, your subject matter and life care planners are in injury cases are often in this realm, uh, especially on the defense side. They're people who testify in lawsuits about what your client needs giving his set of injuries, but they never in real life do any of that. So uh, let's say you've got a uh, somebody in a wheelchair 
after the, a horrible accident of some kind, and you have a person saying, well, they need A, B, C, D, and E, and then the other side puts up this expert who says, oh, no, uh, they only need X, Y, and Z, which is far, far cheaper than A, B, C, D, and E. And so your question on cross is, and what you know ahead of time is that this person does actual no work in real life with people in wheelchairs. They only do it for purposes of the of lawsuits and, and primarily for defending lawsuits. So you could bring that out in just one leading question question. You could say, now, isn't it true that you don't actually treat anybody who's in um, the circumstances of my client? And they would have to say yes. And if the jury was blinking or not paying attention, that could easily go in one ear and out the other because it just happens so fast. But why not try to expand it out and say, now, in your work outside of lawsuits, are you familiar with the fact that they have uh, clinics in specialty hospitals that specialize in caring for people who have to have mobility in a wheelchair? Yes, I know that such clinics exist. Okay, have you ever worked in one? No, I have not. Or, Or better, you could say, well, how about this past year? Tell me how many people confined to wheelchairs that you actually worked with to help them get the care they needed. And the answer turns out to be none. It's better to hear that word none come out of their mouth than out of your mouth. And so there are a bunch of ways where you can just take this one little nugget of truth that this person never works with people who are in your client's circumstances outside of lawsuits, and you can expand it into a whole big line of questions using somewhat open-ended, although you know fairly narrow questions like, how many people did you treat? How many have you helped? Uh, how about the year before last? How about in the entire twenty year, last 20 years? None, 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 none. It just makes the point stronger. You, you talk in your book about how you can take uh, the other side's expert or an adverse party and turn them really into your own witness by getting them to adopt kind of your theory of the case, your rules. And then you later on talk about other strategies where you're aggressively cross-examining somebody to demonstrate that they have a bias or they did they did shoddy work. They're not the right fit for the case. Do you think you can do both with the same witness or do you have to choose? Is this going to be a witness I'm going to use to prop up my case or am I going to try to tear tear the witness down? Excellent question, Ben. And I would say that you got to make a choice because what you're looking for with these witnesses is you want to create an overall impression of them with the with the jury. And when you try to get concessions out of them that help your positive case, you're treating them as somebody who, A, is honest, and B, is an authoritative person. Uh, when you then switch gears totally to say, well, this guy's a damn liar and you can't believe anything you say, you're, you, you have a, a you know totally at odds with each other, kind of two different impressions you're trying to uh, leave the jury with. So I think you do have to choose. I think the people you can get concessions out of mostly are going to be pretty honest witnesses. They're not going to be the defendant typically 
Oh, some some will go that way because they feel so guilty. Uh, but typically, there will be a, a bystander kind of a witness who's just is kind of going to give up the truth sooner or later, and you take a much softer, gentler approach with that kind of witness. On the other hand, a professional witness who spends most of their courtroom life trying to ruin uh, plaintiff cases, you got to take a totally different approach. And I do like to start with bias. I like to basically say, you know what? There's no way you could ever um, concede anything about our case because it would mess up your stream of income if you were became known as somebody who, who would uh, cave on the witness stand. You've, you've done it so many times. You know, that, that's kind of the theme. And you, you obviously have to break that down into multiple uh, questions. But I, I think you with some of these guys, you really got to uh, tear off the mask that they wear of uh, the mask of reasonableness and objectivity and prove that, you know, there's nothing objective uh, about this person. and They're not trustworthy, ladies and gentlemen. When you go on the attack um, in your cross-examination to expose bias or credibility, do you have an opinion on the length of that type of cross-examination and is there some sort of rule you live by where it needs to be shorter or longer in beating down a, a witness when you've got that strategy? Um, well, with, with a professional medical witness, what I often like to do is um, give them a statement that they have to agree with from their own professional society uh, about how they're supposed to testify in court. The orthopedic surgeons who are probably in a day in, day out, they're the most common uh, witness, expert witnesses you're going to see in personal injury cases. They have uh, an expert witness affirmation statement on their website. And you can actually, we have collected on my law firm website ethics statements from 37 different specialty societies. So if you Google uh, patrickmalonelaw.com as one term and then expert witness as the other term, you'll see this whole list of, of uh, specialty societies and we've got links to all the statements and stuff. So they say, uh, hey, an expert witness must be objective, complete, uh, not uh, not be a cherry picker. They don't use that term, obviously, but uh, words to that effect, uh, objective and unbiased. So force the witness to agree with that. And then after that, one of two things is going to happen after they uh, uh, agree to the statement. They're either going to prove by their demeanor and their attitude when they continue to be aggressive and answer every one of your narrow yes or no questions with uh, a whole a treatise of multiple paragraphs turning in the jury and 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 talking to them they're either going to prove that that they really are biased and they're not objective or you will tame them and get get them to be a little more meek a little less aggressive and a little more straightforward in in answering your questions so i think a lot of good comes from putting that up there fairly early in the cross the expert witness uh, specialty statements. What, what would you say the the biggest mistakes are that lawyers make in doing cross? And if 
lawyers were only going to improve on one aspect of their cross-examination skills, what would be the first thing to start start with that's most important in your view? The first thing I would do is realize that he or she who loses their temper with the witness has lost the cross-examination. Juries don't like that, typically. You can't shout at witnesses, even when they richly deserve it. And so I always tell people, uh, revenge is a dish best served cold. You've, you've got to be persistent, definitely, with them. You've got to be pointed in your questions and use very plain language. But you also have to be polite. And I try not to cut them off. I try to, you know, if they want to give a whole paragraph in answer to a yes or no question, I, 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 I don't try to typically stop them in midstream, although sometimes I will, but yeah, it, it depends. Um, I definitely w- don't ask the judge, uh, judge, uh, help, 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 was the, the basic <laughs> thing. Because, you know, if you're, you're the cross-examiner, you're supposed to be in charge of this, not the judge. So stay in charge of it. And so one quiet move you can make after they give a whole paragraph in response to a simple question, you can say, now, sir, what was my question? And they're typically very flustered by it. They've usually forgotten what your question was. And then you can just quietly repeat the question and say, how about giving me an answer to my question? And I think that can be very effective. Or in terms of witness control, you can just kind of hold up your hand like this, uh, the universal stop sign. Lots of times people will will stop. But you've got to do it in, in a polite way. You don't remember the jury's sitting there and they know they've got a professional advocate standing up, strutting around the courtroom. And then they've got this witness sitting in, in the box. Well, who are their sympathies going to go for? Typically, it's going to be for the witness in the box, unless the witness proves him or herself to be evasive and obviously biased and stuff like that. Um, so you want to treat them somewhat gently, although you can, uh, you can do more the more the witness reveals themselves. So that's that's where I would start with telling people on their uh, cross skills. So keeping an even temper would be the number one thing to make sure you do. And then, and what what do you think aside from not keeping a temper? Um, what do you think the other kind of big mistakes are that lawyers make? A failing to think through the whole line of questions. Uh, where is the witness going to go with this? One of the things I like to do is just study the report that the witness uh, has uh, written. And in federal court and, and uh, our local court in D.C., you have to do a Rule 26 report. I like that. I think it's a lot better than the deposition. I think depositions too often are t- uh, training grounds for the witness to become a better witness at trial. And lawyers who use the deposition to think, ah, I've got this great admission here in the deposition— and they think the witness is just kind of meekly going to roll over for the same uh, admission they made in the deposition, you're sadly mistaken, my friend. What's going to happen is, because you've given them a roadmap, uh, and I had this uh, uh, light bulb go off uh, for me on this when I was 
walking into court after lunch in the middle of the day, and this next witness was sitting on the bench outside the courtroom, and he was studying a transcript. Well, what do you think it was? It was the transcript of my deposition of him. And so they're going to be ready for stuff from the deposition, and they're going to have things like, oh, well, I'm so sorry we misunderstood each other in the deposition, counselor. I thought you were asking blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it it can be the most preposterous thing in the world, but you've got to be ready for them to try to twist whatever happened at the deposition. That's why what I advocate is doing trial prep about the witness on things that the witness is not going to be ready for. You know, we live in this Google era where everybody's life is an open book. You can study these witnesses and learn all kinds of stuff about them. I've got a whole chapter in the book of all the different public record uh, things that, that you can look at. You can find out whether or not Uh, Like if it's a doctor, for example, has the person really kept up their board certification? Um, Does the board that they claim to be certified from, does it even exist? Is it one that uh, you can get this board certificate just by sending in 500 bucks plus uh, two Kellogg's Corn Flakes box tops? Or, you know, is it a real board? So, and that's just the start of it. You go to your, your state licensing body uh, to see if there's disciplinary activity against the person. You see if there have been uh, Daubert motions against them, all kinds of stuff. And But you got to do this well in advance of trial. I, I, you know, I'm on the various local and, and national listservs, and I always wince a little bit when somebody asks a question. Typically along the following lines, they'll say, we are cross-examining so-and-so, a well-known defense uh, traveler, tomorrow. Does anybody have any good stuff on him? Well, tomorrow is way too soon. Uh, what's that Carol King song? It's too late, baby, now. It's too late. Though we really did try to make it. I, I kind of have a 30-day rule, just because 30 days is a good, good number. But it, it's really try to go out there and do this outside discovery work in plenty of time so that you can absorb whatever it is and you can prepare an intelligent cross before you've got 10,000 other things going through your mind in the middle of trial. Yeah, that's great advice. So I would encourage everyone to go out and grab uh, Pat's book. It's a, it's a great resource. Um, it's got all of the information you just described. It also has tons of excerpts from transcripts from some of the the best, most prominent trial lawyers across the country, including Pat, but many others. Um, Some of the high points of their examinations as illustrations of what to do uh, in different settings. So it's it's just really a great resource. And I want to thank you for joining us today, Pat. This has been really terrific. We've we've been going over probably about an hour now, so I think we should probably wrap it up. Uh, Raul, any parting words? No, I really appreciate you making the time, Pat, and for writing these books. It's it's excellent tools for all of those both young and skilled trial lawyers to get better and to help their clients. So thanks for making the time, and it was it was really great meeting you. Well, uh, Raul and and Ben both, I I really enjoyed talking to you guys today. We'll do it another time if you like. Looking forward to it. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. 
That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E dot net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.